The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. <laughs> okay, everyone. So let's uh, get started uh, with the Q&A for today. So uh, I think yesterday's questions are probably here somewhere. I'm not sure if they are in the bottom or the top, but we'll just see what happens as we go along here. So, uh, dear Ajahn, can you please explain the Bodhipakya Dharma, Aids to Awakening? I remember you mentioned 37 of them here. Yes, these are very interesting teachings. Uh, Bodhi means awakening. Pakka means like on the side. Yeah, so they are on the side of awakening. So they are like the aids or the supports to awakening here. And um, 37, what is interesting about these is that uh, in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, uh, just before the Buddha is about to pass away, he says that if you are going to Remember what the Dhamma is. Uh, this is the Dhamma. This is a summary of the Dhamma. Oh, what happened to your arm? Are you okay? Are you all right? So, yeah? <laughs> okay. You're, okay. You fell? Oh, really? Oh, okay. Okay. Well, a good time to listen to the Dhamma. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the body is so unreliable. You never know what's going to happen next. <laughs> So the Buddha said, this is the Dhamma. Yeah, if you're going to remember anything as my teaching, this is a summary of the Buddhist teaching. Yeah. That's a very powerful statement. So the 37, yeah, what they are, they are the Noble Eightfold Path, eight, <laughs> seven factors of awakening, seven plus eight, 15, five spiritual faculties, five plus 15, 20, Five spiritual powers, Panchabala, yeah, another five, 25. Four uh, Satipatthanas, the four right mindfulness, 29. Four Idipadas, Idipadas are the um, five aspects of spiritual power. Iddi is spiritual power, Pada is like an aspect or a path, 33. And then four right efforts, 37. So that's why they're called 37. So, um, and if you analyze them, it's quite interesting because when you do that and you look at the various factors in there, what you find is that the four right efforts, the four satipatthanas, the, um, the right mindfulness, and samadhi, these three factors, they are found everywhere across the board, found many, many, many times. Uh, in those 37. yeah. So it's not like there's 37 individual factors that many of them are found many times. Uh, so these, in a sense, are like what the Buddhist path really is about. Yeah? This is the kind of the, the core of the Buddhist path, right effort, right mindfulness, and right samadhi. Uh, yeah? These three. Uh, and of course, those three are all about the cultivation of the mind. Yeah? Mental development is what those three are. Uh. So you can say that um, Yes, virtue, kindness, and all of these things are very important uh, uh, externally, uh, but that's kind of fairly common. Yeah, we find that in most religions and spiritual traditions around the world. But the thing that makes the Buddhist teaching special is the mental cultivation uh, and how that leads to awakening. Uh, right effort, right mindfulness, sama samadhi, right samadhi on the end. Uh, these three things together. Uh, 
That's the 37 Bodhipakya Dhammas. I, I think I gave a retreat a few years ago on those 37 Bodhipakya Dhammas. I'm not sure if it has been recorded or not. I think the, probably the one at the BSWA was recorded. So they are available there somewhere if you want to listen to them. Dear Arjan, you mentioned yesterday that one should have compassion towards one's past actions if one hasn't been following the path before, uh, uh, rather than being ashamed of oneself. We are so deeply conditioned that we really don't have any choice. Then why are we responsible for our actions uh, and bear fruit of our karma? Many thanks. Uh, well, the, the thing is that, um, you know, whether you want to or not, you have to get the results of your karma. The karma is just a connection between intention and how you feel. So if you intend in a certain way, you will have to bear the consequences. You will feel bad about it. So intention has a result. Whether you are responsible or not, the intention still has a result. You feel bad about yourself. Yeah, that's the bad karma. You feel bad about yourself right away here. So uh, it's just the law of nature in a sense that intention leads to bad feelings uh, yeah, in the future, in the present life, uh, and beyond that as well. Uh, that is really all that karma really means. Uh, but where does that intention come from? Is that intention come from you? Does it come just because all these things come together and then suddenly, you know, you, you do it anyway? Uh, that's kind of a... That's irrelevant. Yeah? The point is that intention leads to how you're feeling good about yourself or feeling bad about yourself, uh, whether you do things, the right things or you do the wrong things. Uh, that's really the point of karma. And um, it sounds kind of counterintuitive that it should be that way, but it feels like we are intending. It feels like it's coming from us. Uh, and because it feels like it's coming from us, uh, that is why one reason uh, why we then judge ourselves badly yeah and we we think of ourselves in a bad way i did it i did the wrong thing here and uh, this is one of the reasons i think why once you become a stream enter you cannot get reborn in the lower realm anymore because you are able to forgive yourself as a stream mentor, you know that you did your past actions not because you wanted to be evil but because you were conditioned in that way and that's why once you become a stream enter, once you understand the idea of non-self, then you can let go fully and you cannot get reborn in a negative bad state as a consequence. This is part of the understanding of stream entry. But if you are not a stream enter, you will judge yourself, at least partially. Yeah? Even if you're not responsible, it feels like you are responsible. This is what it feels like. Yeah? And even if you understand the teaching of non-self to some extent, you will only ex understand it partially. Yeah, because that's kind of what it means not to be a stream entry. You only have partial understanding. Yeah? Because you only understand it partially, you will judge yourself to at least some extent. Yeah. So we should never think, I can just do bad things and then forgive myself. <laughs> Don't think like that. Yeah, because if you think like that, you, you can fall into a trap and it doesn't actually work. You can only forgive yourself so far. So we use self-forgiveness as a skillful means to reduce the feeling of guilt or shame or whatever. But it's never 100% effective. And that's why you always have to do your very best to live well and do what you can. Be as kind as you possibly can. Okay. Oh. 
There is a mini essay. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Aaron, for your teaching. I am, if I am allowed to please express a humble opinion about stream entry here, <laughs> okay. Um, um, and monkhood, stream entry and monkhood, the chances of your audience today becoming monks and nuns could be very slim. Um, the whole audience, I agree, but maybe there's one or two possibilities. Yeah, you never know. There's always, some, or there's always some. There's always a few people who are really keen on the monastic life and who are leaning in that direction. Actually, I know a few people here already who are leaning towards monastic life. So uh, I'm just. My job is to kind of be the PR manager of monastic <laughs> monasticism. <laughs> uh, so to give them some hope and inspiration, could you please emphasize a bit more during the coming days that they could aspire to stream entry and beyond in the next life by diligent practice in this life as lay people? The Buddha identified the Chattari Purisa Yugani Atta Purisa Pugala. The first kind are people who are on the path to stream entry. Perhaps we could get into that first group in this life and continue to practice into stream entry in the next life. <laughs> yes, perhaps. <laughs> Uncertain. If you go into the first group, you will become a stream mentor before you die. That's one of the promises. Yeah. So you will be a stream mentor by the time you die. So these eight Atta Purisapugala, eight kind of individual, and then the four pairs, yeah, the, the four yoga, um, they are stream enter, the one on the path to becoming a stream enter, and the stream enter, the one on the path to becoming a once returner and the once returner, the one on the path to becoming a non returner and the non returner, the one on the path to arahantship and then the arahant. And once you are on the path, you will become the full stream enter within, at the very latest, when you die. Yeah. According to the commentaries, if the world system is about to collapse, uh, the world system cannot cannot collapse before you become a stream enter. The world system has to wait for you to become a stream enter. <laughs> I don't know if that's to be taken literally, but that's when some of these commentaries say. Uh, sometimes I the commentaries say strange things. I have to admit. Uh, so uh, yes, I, I I would say forget about this whole thing about attainments. Yeah. Forget about it. It's not helpful to think in this way. Do your very best to be kind. Do your very best to live well. Do a bit of meditation practice. Be peaceful. Be as wise as you can. Understand the teachings. Read the sutta. See what the Buddha said. Build up your life to the best of your ability. Forget about attainments. Because all this focus on attainments, I think it destroys the path in many ways. And uh, you become focused on the goal rather than on the, F, the things that lead to those goals. Uh, focus on the causes, uh, don't focus on the results. Uh, it's a, it's a Ill sickness in Buddhism that we talk about these things too much. Uh, but it is the case, still, regardless of how you look at it, it is the case that the Buddha obviously laid down monasticism for a reason. He didn't do it just so you know you get the people walking around in funny clothes. That's kind of not not sufficient <laughs> sufficient reason. There has to be a reason for it, and the reason is that this is the best way of practicing. Because as a monastic, you are approaching the quality. You know what what does it mean to be awakened? Well, it means that you renounce things. So you are kind of 
practicing that way more closely as a monastic, you are closer to the goal simply through the way you are practicing. Yeah. yeah, and that is kind of the um, the idea behind this. Uh, but do your very best. If you can't become a monastic, you can't. That's fine. Uh, if you can, wonderful, become a monastic. Yeah. Either way, do your best. Can you have cheese and chocolate if you are taking the eight precepts? Is there a specific type of meal you take before midday? All right, so here we come to the important questions. <laughs> now it's good to know what's going on. So uh, is there a specific type of meal you take before midday? No, not really. Take, eat anything. In Buddhism it's very kind of um, open. You can eat pretty much whatever. Uh, some monastics prefer to be vegetarian, but you don't even have to be vegetarian to be a monastic, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Cheese and chocolate. Why do we take cheese and chocolate? Now, this is uh, the reason for this is because at the time of the Buddha, there were monks who were sick, they were ill, they didn't, weren't able to eat properly, so they were allowed something in the afternoon, yeah, in the evening. Yeah. And what they were allowed is a thing called the five tonics. Five tonics is. Uh, uh, oil, sugar, honey, uh, whole sugar, honey. What is the whole ghee? Navanita called ghee. What have I forgotten there? Oil, sugar, honey, ghee, and uh, yeah, it's um, <laughs> she's supposed to know this. This is kind of a basic kind of in here. Anyway, well, it is five things. Yeah, oil, uh, navanita. So, the, and these five things are kind of things that were not considered really gross food in ancient India. They were considered kind of simple additional food that people would have. Uh, yeah, and uh, these days they're considered not very healthy. Yeah, honey, sugar, oil, uh, <laughs> ghee. <laughs> yeah, it, it's not kind of the great great stuff. Uh, but it was to give people a little bit of energy in the evening. Yeah. So that was the, what is called the tonics. And there's something called the lifetime medicines. And these are anything that uh, is con considered medicinal. And medicinal would be things that, again, things you don't eat, but things that you can use, like leaves in the forest and these kind of things. So things like tea would be fine, or coffee, beans, yeah, because you don't really eat it. Uh, fruits that are not eaten, uh, um, things like cocoa, etc. So if you put all of these things together, basically chocolate is allowable because chocolate is made of sugar, oil, fats, and cocoa, yeah, all allowable things. So chocolate becomes allowable because it's built up of allowable products. And cheese, is that allowable? That's a very good question. Some people say it's not allowable. Some people say it is allowable, but it's a tiny, it's a small matter. Yeah, it's, it's a, there's a Pali word called navanitang. Nobody knows exactly what it means. It was a kind of a product that was of the cow that was made in India two and a half thousand years ago. And no one knows exactly. It probably wasn't exactly like cheese, but cheese is kind of ballpark. Yeah, so we are kind of, that's why we take it sometimes. At Bodhinana Monastery in Perth, we don't take cheese at all. But sometimes when you, sometimes you take it, you know, it's really entirely up to you. So this is why, why that is happening. That's why these things are done. So if the Buddha had been alive today, he probably would have laid down very different rules. Yeah, So we are stuck with those rules. That's why we eat those things. <laughs> All right. Okay. 
it was number one it was so moving to listen to your teaching dhamma so grateful please explain more about non-self who attains enlightenment if there is no self <laughs> why there is only six and a half percent of the population are buddhist why is it so hard to sell the dhamma is it just because you have to give up everything and asking for no return <laughs> please help um, so no remember no self is the idea is uh, it's not about who attains enlightenment that's kind of the wrong question to ask yeah? the problem is that we, right now there is a problem you experience dukkha who doesn't it's not there's no no one who experienced dukkha it's just that you experience dukkha you don't want to experience dukkha that's why you attain enlightenment that's the reason for attaining enlightenment it's not about who is attaining it who is experiencing dukkha right now that's actually irrelevant it's not about who the fact is that you experience dukkha that's what matters so it is the same blob of five khandas that you are now that experiences dukkha same blob of five khandas also experience enlightenment yeah there is no difference the idea of enlightenment is just the idea of seeing things you know right now from the buddhist point of view we are deluded we don't see things as they actually are the reality is that there, even though we feel we exist in a certain way we feel there is a self the buddha says that's a mistaken perception already now there is no self there has never been a self it's just the wrong feeling about the reality so when you become enlightened you realize that wow there was no self all along here cool <laughs> Actually, it's a very happy experience. Yeah, this, you realize the self is an incredible burden. To get rid of that delusion is one of the most amazing experiences you can have as a human being. Yeah? If you read the suttas, they say you will never forget that for the rest of your life when you have that kind of experience. It's incredibly powerful. Yeah? So um, these are so forget about who attains it. It's, that's completely irrelevant. Uh, the point is, if you want to be happy, you've got to achieve, achieve enlightenment. Uh, that's all that matters. Why is there only six and a half percent of the population who are Buddhist? Is why is it so hard to sell the Dhamma? So um, is it because we have to give up everything? Well, it's it, it depends on. We have to be good salespeople, and I think um, I think very often we're not very good at selling these teachings. To me, these are the most beautiful teachings in the world. Uh, there's nothing like the Dhamma of the Buddha. It's extraordinarily wonderful. Uh, it's so practical. It's so pragmatic. It has to do with the very essence of what life is about, about being happy and avoiding suffering. Uh, everybody wants this. Uh, and I think we just have to learn to package it uh, in a good way. And to me, this is the meaning of life. Uh, the meaning of life is answered in the teachings of the Buddha. Uh, yeah, what is the meaning of life? Well, just ask yourself for a second what, is, what it is that you want. What is it that drives you on in life? And we are driven on in life by the search for something. We're looking for something. That's why we keep on acting. Yeah, What are we looking for? Well, we're looking for end of suffering, of course. We're looking for more contentment, less problems, more happiness. This is what drives us in everything we do. So if the Buddha says that happiness actually exists, it is possible to find an end of suffering. It is possible to find the thing you're looking for. Well, then you have found the meaning of life because this is what we're always looking for. So the Buddha's teaching is the answer to the meaning of life. 
Yeah, we just need to make that clear. We, don't, we should stop saying, yeah, no self, right? So practice or whatever. And then we have to be practical and pragmatic about this, thing, not too intellectual and dry. We have to kind of teach these things in a meaningful way. And often, as Buddhists, we're not good enough at teaching it in a meaningful way, in a way that t- touches people's hearts. One of the biggest problems is that there aren't enough areas in the world, noble people, huh? where we need more areas. Huh? You know how to get more areas? Huh? Each one of you has to practice really hard. That's how we get more areas. <laughs> yeah, who, who is going to be the areas? We look outside our, ourselves. We look for the areas outside. No, look for the area within. That's where you find the area. Then we get more areas in the world. Huh? We're looking for the great teachers. It's important to have a good teacher, but in the end, you have to convert yourself uh, <laughs> into that area. But yes, I, it's a very good point. I think we're not good enough at selling these teachings. They are so wonderful and so amazing. And um, with a bit more good salesmanship, I think we can probably take it a long way. Uh, anyway, thank you for those questions. Hello, Venerable. You mentioned today about monks going forth and leaving with just a small bag. One can live on fruits and maybe dana, take shelter on pavement under tree. But what about clothes? Thank you. <laughs> I, I didn't. I didn't mean walking around naked or anything like that. So. <laughs> Well, the point is that uh, what I meant was that, of course, you have your bowl. Yeah, the bowl is important. That's where people put alms food. Yeah, and usually it's amazing. You can get alms food anywhere in the world. People will recognize you as a monk. It's kind of astonishing. Uh, Of course, you have to have your robes. Yeah, so when you ordain, they give you robes. So you can't just put on robes at home and become a monk. You have to go through ordination ceremony. And if you go through ordination ceremony, robes will be given to you. It's very easy to get robes these days. Um, Shelter under a tree. Uh, Yes, but usually it's better than that. (laughs) Usually you're able to build a cutie somewhere. And even if you're desperate, the, the lay people will usually help you to build a cutie. If you stay in a Buddhist country, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And you are a monk, and people see you, they will build your kuti. It will be simple, but they will build your kuti to stay in. Kuti is like a small hut. So uh, it is surprisingly surprisingly easy to uh, to survive as a Buddhist monk, because you get so much support. It's a kind of astonishing that um, when you're a Buddhist monk, it often brings out the best in people there. People recognize you, they see you, they think of you as some you know someone special. And there are certain countries in the world who have very strong religious experiences, very strong religious traditions. In India, for example, if you travel to India, even though you are not part of the establishment in India, people recognize you straight away as a kind of holy person, and they will support you. Yeah, it's kind of beautiful. You go there, you can go into a very poor village. I know monks who have been to India, gone to the Buddhist holy sites in India, and they've gone, just gone arm for arms around in a very poor village, for example. Straight away, people will support you. It's beautiful. It's really nice. It's a bit dangerous because you might get very sick that way, especially if you come from Australia, you're used to kind of the way we do things. But it's, the whole idea of giving is ingrained in that culture. 
I must admit, I really love India. I think India is a really fascinating country because, precisely because of that spiritual tradition that permeates Indian society. Sometimes you get lots of scallywags, <laughs> of course, but uh, occasionally you get people like the Buddha arising in the world. Yeah, the Buddha arises in India because of that spiritual nature of society. Yeah. And also in Australia, it's the same. It happened to me many times as a Buddhist monk that people just give you things because you're a Buddhist monk. Yeah. I remember once at Bodhinyana Monastery, we needed some of these great pipes yeah, to go under a road, these concrete pipes. So we go to this yard where they sell these concrete pipes, I think culverts, I think they call them. We go to this yard that sells these culverts, and we kind of load up some culverts, and then we go to the exit to pay. And they look at us and say, oh, you monks, yeah, it's free for you, it's free for you, you can go past through. Yeah, it's beautiful. And this was like this really rough place. Yeah, you can imagine selling concrete products. It's really kind of enormous Australian men. Yeah, and uh, oh no, that's okay. You're, it's okay, free for you. Huh? And these sort of things happen sometimes. Uh, where people do amazing things uh, precisely because you're a monk. They recognize something there. And that's kind of marvelous. Uh, so um, you don't have to worry about us. Yeah, we normally don't have to sleep under a bridge or anything like that. Uh, usually we are okay. So. Uh, <laughs> All right. Venerable, thank you for your teachings. It is, really, is it really possible to attain enlightenment if one is mindful moment to moment for seven days, as mentioned in the Satipatthana Sutta? Or is it more metaphorical <laughs> with metta? Um, the Satipatthana Sutta is not about being more mindful moment to moment. That's not really what it is about. And I will talk about the Satipatthana Sutta later on. And the reason we think that it is about that is in large part because of the things that is called Satisampajanya, which is part of the Satipatthana Sutta. Yeah? It says in there that you go forward, you're mindful, you come back, you're mindful, you stretch your arms, you're mindful, you look this way, you're mindful, you look that way, you're mindful, you speak, you're mindful, all of these kind of things. And the idea is that if you just do that, then you will become enlightened. But no, that is not enough. And in fact, that section does not really belong to the Satipatthana Sutta at all. It is a later addition to the Satipatthana Sutta. This is a very important point that has been established in Buddhist scholarship quite clearly. So Satipatthana Sutta, you have to do all four Satipatthanas. How do you practice those four Satipatthanas? By doing mindfulness of breathing. That is the main way of practicing Satipatthana. Not mindfulness moment to moment, but specifically doing Anapanasati and watching the breath. Taking that breath meditation all the way to the jhanas. Remember the last Satipatthana, the Dhamma Nupassana. One of the Dhamma Nupassana is the Satta Sambhujanga. Seven factors of awakening, yeah? Seven factors of awakening includes samadhi, includes upeka, it includes the very end of the, no of the Noble Eightfold Path. So you, um, yes, you have to be mindful moment to moment, that's called mindfulness of breathing. Take that all the way to the seven bojangas, attain a jhana, then upeka, sambojanga is the fourth jhana, yeah? So all the way to upeka. And that's when you have a chance of doing it within seven days. So four jhanas, then you can do it in seven days. Yeah, <laughs> Mindfulness moment to moment is not really sufficient. You need much more than that. Can you do it in... So then seven days may be possible. But um, even then, it's a bit of a, bit of a stretch perhaps.
Is it metaphorical? Yeah, maybe. I'm not really sure what it's uh, what it means to be honest. Uh, I don't think it was originally part of that sutta. Uh, it may have been something that was added over time. It's a sort of thing that you find in certain suttas. If you do this for seven days, and it kind of gives you this kind of sequence. Uh, so I'm not entirely sure if it is original. Anyway, let's, we'll look at that later on when we come to the end of the retreat. Respected Ajahn, and more than enough for your teachings, how can one know whether one is in Kanika or Upachara Samadhi? Many thanks. <laughs> uh, Kanika Samadhi is um, not found in the suttas. It's not part of the word of the Buddha. Kanika Samadhi is found in the Visuddhimagga. It is mentioned in the Visuddhimagga maybe twice. If you look at the Tika, Tika is the sub-commentary to the Visuddhimagga. That's where you find most of the explanation of Kanika Samadhi. So it's not, word, it's not the word of the Buddha. So it's kind of uh, irrelevant. Yeah, I wouldn't focus too much on it. Uh, it sounds, Ajahn Brahm always says that Kanika Samadhi is an oxymoron. Uh, because Kanika means momentary and Samadhi is, an, is a continuous experience. Yeah, That's the point of Samadhi. So how can you have momentary continuity? Uh, it's an oxymoron, right? It's, it's kind of weird. Uh, so it is they redefine the idea of samadhi in an entirely new way, and it becomes a kind of samadhi which is not the same as the jhanas that you find in the suttas. They come, they come up with new terminology like vipassana jhana, these kind of things, which is really weird. Upachara samadhi, upachara samadhi also not found in the suttas, uh, but uh, upachara samadhi, upachara means like neighborhood, or proximity, so it means that you're close to samadhi. Yeah, that's kind of the idea of upachara samadhi. And uh, not really found in the suttas, the suttas talk about jhanas. Uh, if you want to know what samadhi means in the suttas, it always means, not always, it, most of the time it means jhana. Yeah? So if you want to practice samadhi, practice the jhana states. That's what you really should do. Uh, so upachara samadhi, and I like this is what Ajahn Brahm says, and Ajahn Brahm says many wise things. And he says that the Upachara Samadhi you should look for is the one that comes after jhana. After you come out of jhana state, your mind is going to be very powerful. You're going to be close to jhana because you just come out. So it's Upachara Samadhi, and that is the Upachara Samadhi really worth having here. Okay, hi Ajahn, how are you? <laughs> um, that's a very interesting question, how are you? I always kind of, I'm not sure how to answer that question. Everyone says, yeah, I'm good, but that doesn't mean anything, right? Everyone is not good, but that's what they say anyway. And um, I always thought, what, what, what would the Buddha say if you asked the Buddha, how are, how are you, Venerable Sir? What would he say here? It's an interesting one. I'll let you think about that one. Maybe we can answer that later on here. Uh, it is very easy to think of one's self as five khandhas. But when severe bodily and mental affliction ails one, it is very hard to practice anatta. How can we internalize anatta uh, on an experiential level rather than intellectualizing it? Uh, I understand one can gain insight into anatta once one goes into jhanas, but for lay practitioners, these insights are hard to come by. Please advise how to include anatta in our daily lives with metta. 
Um, I did talk a bit about this yesterday. Um, but um, yes, if you have lots of bodily pain, it is very difficult to think of non-self. And uh, there are some very interesting suttas about monks who were very long way on the path. And they got very ill, they had very strong pain, and they weren't able to enter samadhi. So even if you are very, gone a long, long way on the path, yeah, these pains can be very problematic to overcome. Yeah? So it can be very hard to overcome pains. And thinking anatta is not necessarily going to help you all that much, because the pain is still going to be there. Yeah? Even if you're the Buddha, you can still feel pain in the body, because that's what the body does, it feels pain. So um, I don't know if that is the best way of using the idea of anatta to overcome pain. I don't know if it w it works a little bit because it means you make less out of the problem. If there's no self, you just allow things to be. You don't create additional burdens by thinking of it as mine and me and all these kind of things. But the pain is still going to be there. So it doesn't really work in that way. So. The idea of non-self, it is one of the best ways of contemplating non-self is to, again, like I said yesterday, look at things in your meditation as they fall away. Yeah, As things fall away, as you become more peaceful, the thinking falls away, a lot of the self gets is experienced through the thinking mind. Yeah, The self makes itself felt through the thinking here i am i think yeah that's what the self says uh, and uh, so just by seeing the thinking dying down you're experiencing a little bit of non-self already yeah but the whole path of anapanasati of calming yeah, people often think there is a difference between samatha and vipassana that there is samatha meditation there's vipassana meditation but no the two are just two sides of the same coin we were discussing this today remember that samatha vipassana and uh, so when you are calm, you see more clearly. And seeing clearly is really a very good translation for vipassana. If you see clearly, you become calm. Because seeing clearly means you let go. Yeah? If you see dukkha, if you see impermanence, you let go. So you become calm. So seeing clearly and calm are two sides of the same coin. They always go together. Right? So um, for that reason, what you should do is you should become as peaceful as you possibly can and then look at that experience you're having. Look at what has disappeared. And those things that have disappeared, they tend to be they are aspects of your previous self that you thought you had before. They are gone. They're no longer there. Oh, I, I'm not the thinking mind. The thinking mind is gone. I feel more happy. The body is gone. Great. Yeah, I'm not the body. I'm still here, but I'm not the body. And uh, more and more things fall away, the deeper your meditation is, and then you get an insight into non-self, just by seeing things falling away, and seeing how delightful it is when things fall away. You understand, those things, they must be non-self. This is one of the best ways of getting an understanding of non-self, and you realize how beautiful it is, yeah? how all the joy and peace and all these wonderful things arise through the giving up of things through yourself becoming concentrated into a smaller and smaller area. When you go into a deep state of samadhi, there's almost nothing left of what you had before. All that is left is bliss, pretty much. Nothing but bliss. So that's pretty cool, right? You let go of all of these things, all that is left is bliss. That is the last area where you have a sense of self. Everything else is gone. Senses are gone, the body is gone, the thinking is gone. A lot of your feelings and perceptions are gone, the will is gone. 
There's very, very little left there. So this is the, one of the best ways of uh, contemplating non-self. Do it through experience, yeah, direct experience. Uh, the kind of intellectualizing is not, not very useful. Uh, as you quite rightly say here. Uh. All right. Dear Ajahn, in your teachings it was mentioned that there are two levels of metta. Really? Okay. One being deep metta, another being not so deep. Could you please explain this further? Well, you could argue that there is an infinite, infinite number of levels of metta. Yeah? Every time you go a bit deeper, it's like a new level of metta. But um, uh, yes, I suppose, you know, metta, there is the metta that you have in daily life when you're just kind to people. That is a kind of metta. The word metta comes from the word mitta or mitra. Mitra is friend, yeah? Kalyana mitta, a good friend. That's what it comes from. It's derived from that. So it means like friendliness. That's really what metta means in a deep way. Sometimes we call it loving kindness in English, but it's about being friendly, seeing the good qualities in other people. So a lot of metta is just how you treat people in daily life. That's a kind of ordinary level of metta. Yeah, and to be able to treat other people well, you have to see the good in them. It's very hard to be kind to someone you don't like. If there's someone you find really difficult and you don't, don't you, you, oh, I can't stand that person. Very difficult to be kind to them. So by training yourself in metta, you're training yourself in seeing the goodness in other people, seeing that they are worthy of your kindness. At the very least, they're worthy of compassion, right? So by being kind, we are kind of learning how to be, have metta towards others. But then you build this up within, yeah, in, in the meditation practice. Uh, you get this feeling, you just see the people in the world and you see the, their beautiful qualities uh, and you see the, uh, you know, uh, you, uh, you wish them well or whatever. Uh, and then you build up these feelings inside. And that is where it becomes very, very deep and very powerful and where you can take it all the way to the kind of level of jhana, yeah, through building up those blisses, just like you build up the bliss. Through anapanasati, you can build it up through metta practice. And there's all the levels in between. And the more metta you have, you start with the external metta, treating people well. You build up the thinking metta. You really feel friendly towards all people. Yeah, you wish them well or whatever. Then you take it to the meditation level. So there's like two, three levels there, in a sense. And uh, yeah. Okay. Dear Ajahn, there is a sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya where the Buddha basically decides to let go of his life force because Ananda does not request him to live for an eon, despite some obvious hints. I don't really know what to make of this sutta and I suspect it was a later addition. When reading the suttas, how can you tell which ones are the word of the Buddha and which ones may have been added later? Many thanks. Yeah, this is a uh, it's a very good point. You will notice sometimes I say that I'm kind of suspicious about uh, certain passages and there's many different ways of doing this. Uh, but one of the most important ways is what you call comparative study of the suttas. Uh, and uh, one of the things that we know about the suttas uh, is that they were handed down in different schools of Buddhism. In ancient India, the early schools of Buddhism, this early Buddhism divided into a number of schools. Uh, 
one of the school went to Sri Lanka and became what is now called Theravada Buddhism. Other schools went to the north of India to Kashmir and Gandhara, as they were called. That was Sarvastivada went there, Dharmaguptaka went there. Yeah, you have other schools of Buddhism like the Mahasangikas. And according to the uh, history books, there were eighteen schools in ancient India. Yeah, so. No one knows if it was exactly 18, and some of those were probably not so important, but that's kind of a number that is often used. And today we have still have the texts of some of these schools. Especially we have quite a lot of texts from the Sarvasti Vaden school. So the sutta you are referring to here is the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, the Diganikaya 16, that exists also in the Sarvasti Vaden version. There's also a Dharmaguptaka version of that. They're all translated into Chinese. So you can read this in Chinese. Yeah, there's also, I think, a Sanskrit version as well of one of these of, of this sutta, I think. Yeah. There is a Sanskrit version, actually. And that must, that's probably the Sarvasti, Va- Va- Sarvasti Vaden one, whereas the one in Chinese is uh, the Dharmaguptaka, different schools. And these schools, they separated approximately around the time of Ashoka. Yeah, time of Ashoka was a time when the missionaries were sent across India to kind of to um, teach everyone about Buddhism, or maybe shortly after Ashoka. And Ashoka lived maybe about 200 years after the Buddha. Yeah, so these schools spread out very, very early on. So they would have been, they were very close to the Buddha compared to what we are now. So when we compare these texts, the Sarvastivadan with the Sri Lanka, with the Theravadan, we get very close to the time of the Buddha. And where there is a difference between the two, well, then we have to decide which one is more likely to be right. And so, for example, when it comes to the Satipatthana Sutta, there are a number of sources. There's about seven different sources for the Satipatthana Sutta. So you compare all those sources and you see what they have in common. What they have in common is most likely to be early because all the sources have that. But if one of the source, only one source has a certain passage which you know, has the Buddha flying through the air, but no one else has that one, then maybe the Buddha didn't fly through the air. Yeah, the Buddha doesn't do, he says himself specifically, I don't do supernormal powers. He says that, so it's very suspicious if he does fly through the air. I'm not saying maybe he could do it, but, but he didn't. Yeah, he says that himself. So this is how you do these comparative studies. You compare passages with with each other. And I fully agree with you. I find this passage about the Ananda not getting the hint by the Buddha, and then the Buddha sort of blaming him afterwards, it's kind of very strange. yeah. Why would the Buddha give a hint to Ananda and then base his decision on what Mara tells him to do later on? The whole thing is really weird. Surely the Buddha is capable of uh, deciding for himself what is right to do. It sounds really strange. I always find that whole passage very weird. And I think the idea, I think one of the reasons why this kind of passage made its way in there, because I don't really think it is uh, what really happened, uh, is because people needed a reason for the Buddha to pass away. The Buddha doesn't die like anyone else, right? The Buddha is enlightened. He can't just die just like that. There has to be some supernormal reason why the Buddha passes away. Okay, Ananda forgot to ask him. That's the reason. <laughs> it's not convincing, right? It's very unconvincing. Yeah. And then you have Mara says, yeah, Mara, Mara goes to the Buddha. Mara says, yeah, you know, you said, you know, when once you're... 
And the sasana, once your dispensation, once your religion is very strong and all the laymen and laywomen and the monks and the nuns are really practicing well, then you're going to pass away. And now your religion is strong, now it's time for you to pass away. And then the Buddha agrees, listening to Mara, right? It's kind of, the whole thing is very strange. And the, so the whole, remember the Mahaparinibbana Sutta is not really a sutta in the ordinary sense. It is not the word of the Buddha, it's a story. We don't know who put that story together. And once you have a story being put together, there's bound to be unreliable facts in there. Because human memory is very, very fallible. We know that. And even if you are enlightened, you have a fallible memory. Sometimes Ajahn Brahm, yeah, I listen to what he says. I think, gee, your stories are always changing, Ajahn. What a <laughs> And Ajahn Brahm is, is a very impressive person in terms of spiritual qualities, but his, his sometimes his you know, memory is kind of, uh, I think, mm, all right. <laughs> so, for the, so we compare the suttas. We are more skeptical of the narrative and the story, stories. We are more, take more seriously the actual word of the Buddha. Yeah? This is how you do this, and how you gradually kind of... Uh, uh, come to the core of what the teachings are. And if something is unbelievable, it's okay to put it to one side. Say, I don't know. I, it's just too difficult to know. We don't have to make a decision one way or the other, but we are allowed to be skeptical in Buddhism. It is no, you, don't have, you don't have to have faith in everything which is in there. This is not about fundamentalism. It's about being reasonable. And this is how this works. So this is one way. There's many other ways of... Uh, doing um, this kind of analysis. One of the things to do is you can look at the textual material, at the vocabulary that is being used. Sometimes you find certain suttas, they have vocabulary that isn't being used anywhere else, but it looks like the Abhidhamma. Yeah, and then you realize, actually here, I like Abhidhamma thinking. This is, must be a sutta which is quite late, which adds new ideas that are not found anywhere else. You find that in a couple of places, in the Majjhimanikaya, for example. And, and, and then you can draw together many different uh, uh, lines of evidence, and then they tend to convert, they tend to show you where are the most, you know, which texts are the most likely not to be original by looking at it that way. So this is kind of um, uh, research that happens in the modern, in, in our day, because we have this kind of different way of looking at things than uh, people had before, because we have much more resources. Uh, we have access to the Chinese, to Tibetan, to Sanskrit, to Gandhara, Gandhari, all of these um, uh, Prakrit languages from India, etc. Oops. So there you go. Okay, let's go on to the next one. Dear Ajahn, you mentioned yesterday in the Q&A that Kamma is not the only thing responsible for one's current situation. We are in a bad relationship. We made a bad choice. But doesn't Kamma also play some role in making bad choices? Um, misery may still follow one if one finds someone else or lives alone, etc., etc. If one is destined to have suffering in life as far as relationships are concerned. <laughs> well, you're not, you're not destined to anything. Yeah? Yeah, this, is, this is not the Buddha's teaching. There's no destiny. You are there to shape your own life. And your life will be shaped according to your conduct in this life. Yes, your past life will have an effect. Of course they will. 
But uh, it's like this beautiful simile of Ajahn Brahm. You, sometimes it's really worthwhile reading some of Ajahn Brahm's very simple books of Dhamma because they're actually very profound. Uh, and uh, one of the stories in the opening of the door of your heart, which is one of was Ajahn Brahm's first book, uh, it has the simile of the pe- person making a cake. Yeah, so there's two kinds of people. One is the person who has the best ingredients, yeah, the best kitchen, all the kind of mod cons and how you kind of bake the cake has super duper fresh uh, produce to make this cake, yeah. But because they don't put their heart into it, because they don't really try hard enough, it still turns out to be kind of average. And then you have someone who has this old rundown joint of a kitchen, doesn't really have any proper you know, tools to kind of make these things together, has kind of old, stale butter and, and, and whatever. Yeah, the raisins are hard and it's just really bad, everything. But they put so much effort into it. They try so hard. They put their heart into this thing and they make a beautiful cake, even though they haven't got what it takes. Yeah, there are, there are more. So the ingredients you have, this is what you come into your life with. This is a comma from the past. And if we really make the most out of it, we can make a good life out of a bad start. Other people have a really good start and then make a complete mess of it. <laughs> right? This is often how it is. So there's no such, you're not destined to anything. You make the best out of this life. One of the great similes of the Buddha is the simile of the how kamma is diluted. Yeah, this is a very important simile and because this shows you a lot of how this works. So the Buddha says that if you have a, like a lump of salt, yeah, the salt here is the bad kamma you bring with you from the past. And you put that salt into a glass of water, well, it's going to be very salty because a lump of salt into a small glass of water is going to make it really, really undrinkable and just terrible. That's the effect. The, the water here is the good karma you have made. And then the effect of that bad karma, when you have a small amount of good karma, it's going to be very painful, just like drinking the salty water. If you take the same amount of salt, the same amount of karma, but you put that into, I don't know, the river Ganges, yeah, or something like that, or maybe not the river Ganges, but something large, yeah, like, the, uh, some, like a pond or something like that, uh, and you taste it afterwards, you can barely taste that at all. Actually, probably can't taste it at all. Yeah, if you're, maybe if you, maybe you can taste a tiny, tiny bit. And again, the water now is the good karma you have made. Yeah, but it's a large amount of good karma. And because of that, the bad karma has very little effect. So it's not, you cannot eradicate bad karma, but you can dilute it to the point where you don't feel it anymore. And this is what this life is about. So don't think you're destined to anything. It's about living well. If you have bad ingredients, if you have a lot of suffering in your life, regardless what's happening, your job is to be kind. Your job is to live to the best of your ability, regardless. Then you are building things up. And eventually, uh, who knows what, what's going to happen to you. Yeah, your relationship might change. Things happen when you, it's like, almost like magic. When you are kind, Good things happen to you. Suddenly, out of the blue, things change. Yeah, this is the marvelous thing about kindness in this life. So, okay. Dear Ajahn, it is helpful to do, is it helpful to do parita chanting for a sick person? 
in the Mahayana tradition, lots of emphasis given on worship, worshiping Avalokiteshvara and chanting Om Mani Padme Hum for curing illness. Your thoughts, many thanks. Um, yeah, I, I think we generally we do too much chanting. I think that's. Uh, I think you should do less chanting, to be honest. Uh, but 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 there are some very interesting um, uh, precedents in the suttas, uh, and one of those precedents is where the Buddha, the Buddha asked Mahachunda. Mahachunda was one of the great arahants at that time. The Buddha is sick. Yeah, the Buddha too gets ill because he has a physical body like everyone else. The Buddha is sick, so he says to Mahachunda, recite the seven factors of awakening. Yeah. Yeah, it's, this is kind of really unusual sutta, and it's kind of things that make you think about things in a different way. So Mahajana doesn't chant, but he recites the seven factors of awakening. Yeah, it's a very meaningful, and the Buddha would of course understand what is going on. So he recites these very profound dhammas, and then when he's finished, the Buddha is free of, of his sickness. So how does that work? What is going on? Is it magic? Is it a miracle? And it's not one sutta, there's three suttas like that, yeah, where you chant the seven factors of awakening and different people, they arise out of that illness and, and usually it's arahants. So first of all, you probably have to understand what the Bojangas mean. And an arahant will understand this better than anyone because they are fully enlightened, they have practiced the path. yeah. So maybe the Buddha is very weak and then just that memory, the reminder of the seven factors of awakening these powerful things, yeah, in your mind, brightens up your mind so powerfully that somehow it is able to eliminate the illness. I don't know. I'm not sure why the Buddha had to ask someone. Why he couldn't just think of it himself? Maybe he needed that support. Maybe he was very weak or something. I'm not sure. But the idea is that mind is very powerful and mind has an effect on the body. And if your mind state is right, it, it will do things to your body that may seem miraculous for other people. You know, one of the things that is well known in hospitals apparently is that if you are in a good mind state, you heal more quickly after an operation. That's interesting, right? It means that your mind affects your body. From a Buddhist point of view, it makes really good sense. And maybe this here, when we talk about reciting the Bojanga, is like an extreme case of that. Yeah, The mind being super positive and the body heals very quickly. So there's things going on there. But you will notice that it, it, in these suttas it works because the person understands the meaning. It is a meaningful thing. It is not just chanting, yeah, but it's actually something meaningful. So what about chanting? Let's say that we chant something in Pali and someone is sick. Yeah? Is that going to work? It depends. Let's say that uh, you are a person with a very powerful mind. Yeah? Someone like Ajahn Brahm. Uh, and Ajahn Brahm spreads metta to you. Uh, is that going to affect you? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. If we say that mind affects matter, we've just been saying that before, mind affects matter. If that is the case, well, it is possible that if you are a receptive kind of person, you will experience some benefit if a very powerful person chants for you. Maybe not. It depends maybe on the illness. It depends on all kinds of factors. very hard to single it down, but maybe. So it is not the chanting that is the power. The power is the power of the mind. That is in all cases what is really the, the essence here, how the mind affects the physical reality. This is what I was saying the other day, that 
the modern idea of the world is very impoverished. We have this idea that the world is just the physical things and the mind emerges from physical things. It's like this physicalism, materialism. It's a very impoverished view of the world. And I think that we are seeing now a trend in science and philosophy where this worldview is gradually losing its power and we're moving in a different direction, which is very interesting. It fits much better with Buddhist ideas. So it is when you chant, the chanting will work if you are spreading loving kindness. Yeah, not if you're just chanting uh, this uh, Om, what is it, Om Mani Padma Hum. That is not really the thing. The thing is the mind behind it. That is what matters. Yeah, so give metta, then maybe you can have a little bit of effect. Or get someone with lots of metta to do the chanting for you or for the person, then maybe even more effect. So this is what matters. It's not magic. There is a real cause and effect relationship here. There's always cause and effect relation. There is no such thing as magic according to Buddhism. Things have to work according to a certain system. Dear Ajahn, can a householder enter jhanas? If yes, how? <laughs> thank you. Oh, you're saying thank you a bit too fast there. I'm not sure if I can have. Can help you. Can, can, yeah. I mean, can is like very, you know, it's like can the, can, can you walk from Sydney to Perth? Can, can, but you know, <laughs> it's like can you swim across the Atlantic? Yeah, maybe can. It's, it's, so it is possible, yeah. And sometimes householders can enter a jhana, especially if, depending really on how you live the household life. And uh, when you go on retreat, especially if it's more like a residential retreat, this kind of retreat here is a bit not ideal because you go back home and you lose a lot of momentum and you can't really have that continuity. So it's nice to listen to Dhamma anyway, but it doesn't have that full oomph of a proper retreat. But then you are renouncing a lot of the pleasures of the world. That is the, usually the time when you can go deeper in samadhi. Yeah? But... Um, it takes a lot of practice for most people to enter jhanas. Yeah? These are very profound things. Uh, so I would say sometimes lay people can do it, uh, yeah? but uh, often it is going to be uh, maybe down the track. Yeah? But uh, yeah, so just have to keep on practicing. Yeah? Keep on being kind, understand right view, build up all the factors, uh, and then one day it just happens. Okay, we are doing quite well with the questions, which is good. Hello, respected teachers. A funny question. Why first two lay disciples asked to become followers of the Buddha without listening to Dhamma? Um, yes. They, I guess they just felt inspired. Yeah, they just thought, wow, this person here is really special. And because they felt the Buddha was so special, uh, then they decided to become followers regardless. Yeah, the Buddha and the Dhamma. It's a good question, though, because they actually said the Buddha and the Dhamma, didn't they? They said, I want to be followers of the, to take the double refuge of the Buddha and the Dhamma. So uh, maybe that's just the way people did things in those days. You take the refuge in the Buddha and the and the in the teacher and the teaching. Yeah. So, uh, but remember, this is a story. Yeah, this uh, story of uh, 
these two layer followers, Balika and Tapusa, it's a story. And I don't know how seriously we should take it because, uh, again, we don't know where it comes from. Who told this story? Yeah, how did it arise? The Buddha didn't say it. So what does it actually mean? So just take it as a nice story and don't try to figure out all the details because uh, there may not be an answer to some of these things. Much gratitude for your teaching, Ajahn. Some, like Mahasi Sayado, advocate focusing on the abdomen for practicing breath meditation. Some, like Ajahn Mahaboa, talks about concentrating on solar plexus uh, at later stages. Some, like Goenkaji, ask you to confine to a small area at the nostrils. Uh, I can watch simultaneously nose and follow the path of breath through the abdomen, follow instructions of Ajahn Buddhadasa and Venerable Analayo. Which way to go? Do we have to focus at one point or look at the breath body? Many thanks. Um, I would say follow the Buddha. Yeah, that's what I would say. <laughs> Forget about all of these other ones. So what does the Buddha say? Well, if you go back to the Anapanasati, what the Buddha says, he says, Satting parimukkang uppa tapetva. Having established sati, satting, parimukkang. Parimukkang is not a very clearly defined word. It's hard to know exactly what it means. But uh, some people say it just means the here and now. Yeah, it means in the present time, in the present space. Here and now, parimukkang. Yeah. So it is not clearly that the idea is just to be present. But the suttas don't say anything about the upper lip. It doesn't say anything about the nostrils. This is what you find in the commentaries. And uh, I like the way Ajahn Brahma teaches meditation because he says you don't have to place it anywhere on the body. If you close your eyes, uh, you can be aware of the breath without having much sense of where it is. You just know you're breathing in, you know you're breathing out. If you look carefully, you, you might be able to notice where it is that you feel that breath. But that's not the point. The point is really to be aware of the breath. And that is what the Buddha says in the suttas. You're just aware of the breath going in and going out. There isn't really any mention of where on the body. So just do that. Breathing in, breathing out. And sometimes if you try too hard to focus on the no, maybe you can't even feel it there. Yeah, Maybe it's kind of really awkward. So forget about that. Just know the breath is going in, know the breath is going out. That is sufficient. And then you take that all the way to deep samadhi and all of those kind of things. Okay, I'm just going to finish off the questions for today. It'll be a couple of minutes late, but I'm sure, hopefully you're okay with that. Hi, Ajahn. I'm not sure as to the practicality of this question, but I've always been curious about the role of the formless attainments are in the Noble Eightfold Path. I see them pop up in the suttas fairly regularly, but don't really hear teachers talk about them very much. They are not part of the Noble Eightfold Path. The Noble Eightfold Path ends with the fourth jhana, yeah? so they're not really necessary. That's kind of the answer. Uh, if you get to the four jhanas, then you are plenty enough to become an arahant. That's what the Buddha says. So uh, they are there, so they mean that they are attainments you can practice um, but uh, they're not actually required so I wouldn't worry too much about the formless attainments and uh, sometimes you hear people who claim to have these formless attainments uh, 
Uh, maybe they do, maybe they don't. I sometimes I'm a bit skeptical when I hear these claims, but uh, you know, it is possible. They're possible to, to attain. Uh, it could be that if you don't have success for some reason with becoming an arahant, then you can maybe go through the noble, all those formless attainments, perhaps. Uh, but uh, it should be plenty enough to have the four jhanas. Uh, so they are there as a, an amusement for skilled practitioners, I suppose. Uh, something like that. Last question here. Dear Ajahn, the translation, uh, the word Naga to dragon is very foreign to Buddhism. This is only my opinion with Metta. Thank you. Um, well, it's difficult, yeah, Naga, because Naga is uh, usually like a, a snake, yeah, in the suttas. Uh, that's one of the meanings. But the Nagas that are supernatural beings, they can emit flames. And what being emit flames? Well, dragons emit flames. Yeah, snakes don't emit flames. So I was a bit unsure yeah, because this is my translation. I was a bit unsure whether I should translate as as kind of fearsome snake or as dragon. But dragon has the advantage is one word, yeah, which kind of kind of brings it out, uh, and it has the idea of flames and things. So, uh, yeah, so. Yeah, good point. It's not the, perhaps the, it's not the perfect translation for sure. Uh, sometimes people say, "Oh, you should just leave the Pali word." That's what people say sometimes. Leave Naga in there, and then we kind of come to understand what it means. And and uh, I don't, so many people have told me to leave the Pali words uh, that if I had left them all in there, there wouldn't have been any English left. It would have been all Pali. No need to translate. You just have to <laughs> read the Pali instead. That's the reality of it. <laughs> so uh, anyway. So there you are. That's all the questions for tonight. So I wish you all a very good night and we'll see you again tomorrow morning. And for those of you who are leaving, do we have any special anything happening for those or are people just going home or... Uh